0: Boss will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and it's the end of another quarter. We've gone to our Patreons, we've asked the question, what shall I do for the last episode of the quarter? Our 30-minute thoughts, what shall I ruminate on? What shall I discuss for 30 minutes? Put a couple of things out there, and we're going to be looking back 30 years to 1992. Now, there's a reason we chose 30 years. I chose some of the years, actually, but thirty-eight is important. I think I talked about this. Maybe not on this, actually. Maybe for the Patreon 30-minute um, uh, thoughts. 30 is a, a, a nice round number, and it's also a generational number. So when you look at, like, Back to the Future is a good uh, example of this. Like, you know, from 85 to 55 to 2015, you know, there's those jumps. It's, it's, and in it is a generational jump. Okay, back to parents, down to kids, you know, down to the next generation or whatever. So, and I also talked about this on a previous podcast, when I we was talking about retro, um, vintage TV and retro TV, things like um, Stranger Things and Cobra Kai, and why these things sort of come round in this generation. Because 30 years later, or it slightly over 30 years, but in that general 30-year sort of period, the people that watched it as kids are now... The ones in the industry, like you know, they've grown up and got to a level where they can actually do what they want to do, and so they bring in all those elements. Um, and so that's really why we're sort of we're now looking at this sort of tail end of the 80s and into the 90s, really, with Recto Television because we're now looking at that 30 year um cycle, okay. That's my theory, and um, that's my sort of theory on sort of nostalgia. nostalgia is a sort of a 30 year um. Gap. It does seem to exceed. It doesn't speed up at times. Like at times, you'll get like blips where it will jump, and you'll get some early two thousand stuff, which is bizarre. But generally, I think it's a, a thirty-year gap. So today, we are going to be looking back at thirty years ago, nineteen ninety-two. My top five films from nineteen ninety-two. Not the biggest films of the year. Just my top films from that year. Um, and there's some goodies in here. I'm going to admit it. But we're going to go down, and this is in order, okay? So this is starting from, uh, let's go from five down to one. Let's do a top, top of the pop kind of style. Dun, 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 dun. That's not the music. I recognise that now. Anyway, here we go. Number five, Sister Act. I think Sister Act often gets forgotten, uh, forgotten or is almost like a normal line. That's not a wrong word, but uh, there's a third one coming. Disney Plus are doing a third one uh, with Whoopi Goldberg. And the crew... And I, I love this film. I think the first one is... It's a feel-good film. It's a really good... It's, it's a really feel-good sort of family film. I mean, you know, it's got those darker moments and stuff at the beginning. Like, the you know, the whole story, just to give you a bit of a, a glimpse of the plot, is uh, a gangster's mole who is uh, a lounge singer kind of thing, played by Whoopi Oberg witnesses a murder, goes into police protection, um, witness protection, and is placed in a convent and has to pretend to be a nun. Um... Sister Mary Frances. Um, I'm trying to remember her bloody real name or the character name it. Anyway, mean, it doesn't matter. But while she's there, you know, she's sort of like, she's obviously slouching and she's sort of, it's, it's this fish out of water comedy about how, her, you know, she becomes a bit more sort of respectful of, of uh, the nunnery and all this other stuff and they become a little bit less stuffy and accept her in sort of her ways. I mean, it's not, it's not unique. It's not, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, a story. It's, it's a story that's been told a hundred times before. Like, you know, we've seen this loads of times. These two, you know, two elements coming together and learning from each other is mean, it's, it's the it's the key component of a buddy cop film, really. Um, but with nuns, uh, which I suppose could be talked sort of like nuns on the run or others. But Sister Act, anyway. So Sister Mary Francis sort of brings in this musical element as well, and, and Whoopi Goldberg. She's funny, she's charming, you know, really charismatic. Like she really I means she carries this film. But they've got a great cast. Got Maggie Smith in it. Um, her other co-star that I'm um, oh, terrible for names, but it would go on to be oh, you also know from Hocus Pocus. Um, the cast in this are, are great. Uh, but it's the music. It's the build upon this. Like it's got the sort of the comedy, drama, comedy action element of like she's been hunted by that, you know by these gangsters, and it has a bit of a uh, a chase showdown at the end where they sort of step in to to help her out. They accept her as one of their own, and you know this sort of thing of like you know sisterly love and stuff. It's it's, it's so good. But also she's taught them to be um, the choir, how to be you know to be this sing this 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 uh confident and there's some so it's so good the music is phenomenal the scene at the end like the pope comes into i think the pope comes into this one or the second one i can't remember but like it's just great it's a really feel good film it's one of those films that like um i don't often go back to i've probably watched it only four or five times I mean, you know, I don't go back to it like lots. It's not a heavy rotation. But if it's on, if I see it on TV, I'm like, oh, I've got to watch some of this. Or when it came on Disney Plus, it was one. Well, when we got Disney Plus, it was one of the first ones we sort of jumped on. Uh, myself and Alex, my wife, just a great film. Highly recommend this to anyone. Sister Act um, is a lot of fun, um, and uh, yeah, highly recommended. Number four. Okay, so this is where we go like from Feel Good. Uh, comedy, music, um, light-heartedness, family fair, to um, gritty um, drama and also Oscar winning. One of the films, It's actually won Best Picture for, for the year. I think it actually won in 93, but it was released in 1992. This is Unforgiven. Clint Eastwood playing William Money in Unforgiven. And this is one of those films that I was, I mean, I was in 92... Just so thirty years ago, I was sort of like um, coming ten, turning eleven. So this wasn't the film I watched in that year, but I watched it later on. But it was a film again. I'm I'm always very uh, reluctant. I'm a bit of a, a a pain when it comes to these things. Like, so any film that is um, Oscar winning and everyone gives it all this buzz and all this other stuff, you hear all this stuff. I'm always the one that's like, eh, I'm not bothered. Why would I want to see? I, I'm a you know contrarian in that respect. So it took me a while to get round to this story. It really did take me a while to get round to this. I didn't watch it. Uh, it was probably like it would have been VHS at the time. I watched it when it was released. or it being in Blockbuster. so It was a couple of years later, and picking it up because I'd heard so much about it, and watch it, and absolutely being blown away by this film. Like I'm not big on westerns. Um, there are a couple that you know those ones that stand up like this uh, Tombstone. Um, the uh, spaghetti western, you know, the man with That name trilogy. There's a couple of others that sort of stand out, but I'm not like one. I don't go back and watch like all the John Wayne stuff. I don't go back and watch Cary Grant. Like I'm not a western kind of guy. It's not. It's not really, But this, this film is so good, um, and it sort of just carries itself with such gravitas. This whole film has got. If anything, I, I often think of this film. I pair this film with like uh, Gladiator now not for spectacle but they they, they just have a, there's a there's a kinship there's a spirituality that i feel with both those films with these historical sort of epics about, about an individual being trapped in a situation that's so good but um with this with this film Clint Eastwood i mean the story is very much um you know a man that's retired from being uh, the gunslinger i mean this is the this is the the end of shane right i mean this this is the if Shane from 1954 is, is about the gunslinger looking to sort of settle down, but ends up among a spoiler, but ends up not settling down. But this is that sort of thing like, oh, he does settle down. This is like the end of Shane if he had stayed, raised a family, but had never really been able to sort of um, not so much give up, but detach himself from that person that he was before. You know, there's a there's a there's a. Um, a resentment maybe a bitterness that having to sort of live this life as a farmer for his kids and stuff like and it shows it in the start of the film we're not like troubling with these pigs and things but then being pulled back in as a way of um being able to sort of pay get, you know there's money available it's what you can do one last job kind of thing but there's no sort of fanfare for it this isn't sort of like you know uh we get the band back together like Blues Brother style. This is very much sort of like I need to do this. Like if we don't do this, I starve. Um and you can see the influence of this in so many things. Like if you've ever watched Punisher or read the Punisher comics, like William Money is the saint of killers. Yeah, that's where he that's that, that. if William Money got home and found his children were dead, like that is the saint of killers. Uh and so this this character, this this Clint Eastwood's um it's almost, it's, this is the man with no name. It, it, it just Unforgiven is the end of a cycle for for Clint Eastwood very much so. Like it's him bringing these characters to an end. Um, much like I think like the Rookie was supposed to be sort of bringing Dirty Harry to a close to hand off to a next generation. I feel that Unforgiven is the same as so him bringing uh, that the man with no name to a close as well. But the fact is that like, this film is so expansive. It's got Gene Hackman is phenomenal in it, phenomenal in it. Morgan Freeman is great in it. Um, but the story is like he's hired, like a prostitute gets knifed, uh, carved up, and they hire this gunman to sort of to take revenge. And it obviously, gets bit out of hand, and um, you know. But it, it, it turns into, into sort of like a series of gunfights, and then they're sort of. I'm not going to spoil it because it's so it's so good. But the but the story there is a story almost in this, and you can read it in many different ways. You know that sort of. Um, not being able to like, you know uh, let go of who you are but also this idea of like you know not so much not going home again but like you know the the uh, the danger of going back to do something and unleashing something that you were before i mean again you know um the, the film logan the the wolverine film logan that was released um that sort of taps up Shane but to me is way more about unforgiven in that similar way um, and again, has a similar sort of um, spiritual sort of. If we're going to sort of shift this into the comic world, that is what Logan is. Um, but yeah, for, for Unforgiven is is um, stands the test of time. It's, it's. I'll be honest with you. There are. If I was to list out all of the films that won Best Picture, from was it twenty whatever it is about hundred years? Is it not twenty six? I think twenty eight, twenty seven, something like that. But certainly the nineteen twenties. Um to now. There are very few that I would stand up and say that's stood the test of time. Like that deserved to be best picture. It's you know, either that represents a really poor year. But neither nevertheless. Um, yeah, unforgiven. Highly recommend it. Go out and get it. Um, you know, not if you're looking to like, Sister Act is your good time, you know, and unforgiven is gonna be quite hard hitting. Not one for the kids. Um but if you if you've you know if you ever watched the Spaghetti Westerns, if you ever watched a Man With No Name or any of those, like seriously, check out Unforgiven. Uh, phenomenal film. Okay, moving on now. Number three. We've done five, done four, number three. And this is the end of a trilogy. Uh, and this is a tr- <laughs> this is a trilogy I watched in reverse. And I've got to, I've got to confess this for a reason. And I'll tell a little story about how I got to see this film. And the film is uh, Evil Dead Three, or uh, the Army of Darkness, starring Bruce Campbell as Ash Williams, when he gets jettisoned back into medieval England that looks nothing like medieval England. It's it's clear it looks like sort of more like uh, southern Europe, uh, or most likely, more probably uh, California, uh, where it was possibly shot. But it's definitely not um, Europe. Definitely not England, at least. Um, but the idea is that Ash Williams, after the events of, of Evil Dead 2, is thrown back in time to a period where the Necronomicon um, is being fought over between these sort of like medieval knights and the, the Deadites. And it culminates in a sort of <coughs> a big battle, um, and he's able to use his sort of modern know how and modern technology to contribute to the battle and all this other stuff. Like, it's brilliantly done, um, its it's got some fantastic sort of. Uh, creature effects some of the skeletons and uh, the fact that um, Bruce Campbell plays his evil version of himself uh, evil ash all shot up and broken up and stuff is is is, is brilliant and uh, there's some great sort of miniature work um, but it's also just fun like and this is one of the things I have to say about Sam Raimi in the Evil Dead trilogy the Evil Dead trilogy is all over the place like thematically and tonally it's Probably one of the most inconsistent trilogies uh, ever made. You know, the first one is this sort of uh, really sort of like dark and and pretty sort of like, you know, aiming for true horror, like indie film um, with gross out humor and some you know uh, like cheap scares, not cheap, sorry cheap scares, but like you know independent sort of style scares. But is great. Evil Dead Two like cranks up the crazy and in, uh, inserts humor. Um, and um, you know, really still going for the gore and the, the gushing of blood, and but is going really for a sort of a charm that the first one doesn't have. And then the third one just throws all, all, all of that stuff and goes for a completely different story to tell almost like a a fantasy horror story about time travel and men out of time, and you know, like um, what they said, the what's it, in, um. You know, sort of like the, the person in King Arthur's court kind of thing. Sort of this idea of being sort of trapped in in the past. Um, and it, But it works. It's kind of... It's fun. It's silly. Like I say, Bruce Campbell is really good in it. Um, but the, the reason I saw this first is... and I, uh, I knew of um, Least of Evil Dead 2. I didn't, I'd never seen it, but it's one of those... I think I'd seen it. That skull with the eyes cover at the video shop. And again, I didn't see this in 92, I saw this probably in 94, 95. Um, but being well aware of those, never having really seen them, I was in an Argos, which is like a catalogue-based um, shop. You go in, you put the numbers in the thing, and you take up the, the receipt up to the till, and they'll get you the item you pay for. it. All right. But between two... Uh, catalogues this is in the 90s they didn't have the they didn't have the technical machines i remember they had like you'd go up and actually look in a book to get the number to write on a piece of paper but there was a copy of army of darkness on vhs sat on the top of this table and i'm looking around and like is this a display item no there's a vhs in it um, it had an hmv sticker on it and i'm looking around and like this is whose is this so I literally took it up to the till and was like I think someone's lost this and the guy behind the till behind the till at Argos says oh yeah that's been there all day no one's come to get it you might as well have it and you know morally I think I was there was questionable but I was a teenager where I went all right so I popped it in my pocket or carried it wherever I went and took it home and just watched it on VHS and I was like all right yeah so that was the first one I saw And then I mentioned it to uh, the guy at our video store who said, well, then you should really watch too. (laughs) Again, this was a a much earlier time where like, video shops and video shop owners were akin to, in this country at least, um, akin to um, comic book guy from The Simpsons, you know. In that sort of vein. They were either really, really rude and horrible and sort of like, you know, uh, pretentious. Or there was just some dude that sort of had all these like, weird films under the counter and were like, if you like that, you should really try watching this. And, you know, like, it's a survivor, go on. Um, and so that's how I saw it. Like, I, was, I saw them sort of like, you know, sort of I was clearly too young, but watched them um, through this Dave's video that existed in Orsley Park in Coventry. Um, but again, Army, Army of Dancers stuck with me. Of the trilogy, I think... I my fa- I alternate between Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness to with whether they're my favorites. Um but it, it always stands out to me. Like can, you can watch it sort of independently, like cuz there's a pre there's a preamble that sort of tells you the events of of Evil Dead 2, but you're best to watch the whole thing. You really are. I recommend it. But Army of Darkness stands out to me. It's a sort of a major film for me in my lifetime. And so that's number 3. Number two, I did see at the cinema in nineteen ninety two, and it's possibly one of the most baller comic book films you will ever see. Everyone goes on about, um, you know, in the modern terms like Zack Snyder and and the uh, the Snyder Cut and. you know how his style. Oh, he brought it. He made it gritty, and he had all this and blah 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 blah. Fine, it's fine. I'm not a huge fan of Zack Snyder, but I appreciate his work. I think some of his films are absolutely excellent. I think I really enjoy 300. I think uh, uh, his version of Dawn of the Dead is great. Uh, Watchmen is is has its moments, and even I'll even acknowledge sort of like Man of Steel is actually kind of good. But all that aside, those are sort of overblown and. You sort of knew what you were getting. Like the studio knew what they were getting. They sort of said, "We're gonna go with the Zack Snyder vision." They sort, of, they knew, and they, that's what they were banking on. It didn't pay off, but they were banking on it. Going back to nineteen ninety two, Batman Returns comes out, and the studio Warner Brothers, same studio again, um, had basically made all the money in the world with Batman in nineteen eighty nine. Like it was um, a mix of Tim Burton and uh, the studio and other people sort of contributed to this vision and made this um, this vision like it was. It's a, it's Batman eighty nine is sort of like Tim Burton restraint it, and it's good. I, I love that that Batman eighty nine film. I think it's phenomenal. It's One of my favourite films. Um, but like you watch the Nicholson Joker and you watch other things and you sort of go if you if you've ever watched Beetlejuice right and that you can sort of see Keaton bringing part of that manicness to, to his Bruce Wayne um, but I, I've, I've never felt that like although I love Jack Nicholson's joker he's never felt fully like a realized Burton character okay he's always felt restrained um, Now, he's fantastic and in the look everything works but it's never felt like a fully realized Burton character if you ever go watch any of the Burton film you know you you know what a Burton Tim Burton character looks like okay? Um, and this is where I think like if it had been a bit older, I think like Johnny Depp would have been that character I think he would have gone to. But anyway, the studio felt confident, they felt comfortable, and they went and said to Tim Burton, basically, um, go do. You you have got the reins. Go make your Batman film. This is Batman Returns, and he said, Well I want Catwoman. Brilliant, to have Catwoman, we're gonna have Michelle Pfeiffer. I want I want Diane DeVito as the penguin. Go do uh, and I want Christopher Walken, and basically sort of like just keeps creating this world, and what you get is a fully realized Tim Burton movie. Um, it is a Tim Burton movie. So it's a it's it's a dark gothic, um, verging on horror at times, at uh, Batman telling now. You Know there are problems with it. I love it. I mean, it's a Christmas film as well. Like, it's, well, it's set at Christmas, right? Whether it's a Christmas film, different story. But it's set at Christmas, you get all these moments. But the characters, like, even the, if you watch, like, for the, the circus characters uh, that the penguin sort of goes around with, like, all the designs are so typical. Burton, the swirly nurse, the sort of like, um, you know, things come to sort of like a, t- a peaked end and sort of trailing off. And, just all the designs feel like Tim Burton drew it, and then they've realised it into sort of some sort of reality. Um, if anything in it, Batman feels like the the most real thing out of the three. But like Danny DeVito's Penguin is a is a revelation. Like that was that was Penguin to me. I'd seen like the '66 one with Burgess Meredith, but like DeVito's Penguin was a, was just an absolute you know mind fuck. Um, I, I loved it. And so, yeah, this film... And obviously, like, Michelle Pfeiffer... Watching Michelle Pfeiffer in 1992 as an 11-year-old... Was, like, a sexual awakening to me... In, in a way that I was not expecting. Um, but that film is amazing. Like, it's a 15, but I still managed to get to see it. That, will exp- that another one, but we'll have to explain one day... How, sort of, like, sometimes... Sometimes you could get into films like that... And sometimes you couldn't. But... It worked. Um, and that film is phenomenal. Another one that's absolutely fantastic. Um... I love the aesthetic of it. I love the sort of um, one of the things I love most about. I love the, the theme. Uh, Danny Elfman's music in that film. I love. I've got the the CD of that, and I've got the digital. And it's just one of those soundtracks I can just listen to, in the background, and it just makes my day. It's one of the most phenomenal soundtracks, uh, scores even. Sorry, um, I'm just checking. But yeah, it, it's um, the opening preamble of like the two parents one of them being played by, uh, your man, um, what's his playhouse? Uh, Christ, but, um, yeah, them dumping the baby over the carriage, they've had this disfigured baby, and they dump it into the river, and it's raised by penguins, like, it's, it's, it's insane, uh, but, because it has this sort of like, gothic quality to it, it's like a, a warped fairy tale, in which Batman is a part, um, works. I mean let's not forget that Batman just out and out kills people in this film. Like at one point he puts dynamite down some fat dude's pants and kicks him into a hole to be blown up. Like, you know, it's not it's not all good and doesn't all work. But I I do love this film. Um it's it's on regular rotation. I watch it almost every year around Christmas. But um yeah, it's just it's it's so much um, of a defining vision of what how I saw Batman. Like, I loved Batman '89, but it was sort of, I was too young to fully appreciate it. So Batman Returns became this sort of like uh, was my again was that sort of like this big um, uh, Batman awakening for me where I was like oh, okay that's the character I love this character. Uh, but like and, and that Penguin is my Penguin. You know I know it's not the Penguin from the book uh, the, the original comics and stuff, But like Dan DeVita's Penguin is just is just amazing to me. See, so Batman Returns stands out for that year. Number one, and again, this is another one of those defining films I've gone back to a number of times, and I've read the source material. Um, There's a comic version of it. I've I've, I've, of the source material. I've you know I've got, Um, but the film itself is um, up there as one of my favourite horror films of all time, and that is Candyman. I think Candyman is, um, it obviously came out in 92, so it's 30 years old. And we obviously had the, 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 re, we had the sequel, the legacy sequel, come out. Uh, that Again, I, I really like that legacy sequel. Um, but this original film. One of the things that's funny about Candyman um, is that he gets lumped in with the slasher crowd. Okay, so you get him lumped in with the likes of Freddy and and Jason and Michael and Chucky and all those, others. and and he's he's up there with like hell with Pinhead from Hellraiser. Like they get thrown in as well. These sort of like horror movie icons. Everyone goes, oh, it's the slasher icons. Um, Candyman isn't a slasher film, in the typical sense. It's an urban legend. It's an like an urban horror film. It's a real sort of. Um, it's about folklore and belief and the idea of um legend living on rumor and these ideas i mean if you go back to the original book the original story um, by clive barker in the in, the, in i think like, volume 5 of uh books of blood like it's not there is no um his, history of a ghost like he, he doesn't have um they I mean it to be fair they tidy it up in the film. I, I like the idea of him having this sort of this backstory this this rumoured backstory that gives him his physical form. But in the in the original book he's like he's got blue li- he is literally like like Candy, he's got yellow skin, red hair, blue lips, like he's all swirly on his body and all this other stuff. Like he is sweet. Um but the, the, the thing remains the same, like people fearing him and telling his story, um, you know, say Candyman five times into the mirror kind of thing is what keeps him alive, and I love that as an idea, that like, you know, he says, even that the character says it, you know, I am rumour, I am the sort of, uh, uh, the fear on the children's lips, you know, be my victim, being able, you know, these victims, these people that die, or are killed in some brutal way, in such a brutal way, or some event that is so brutal, that people can't... Attribute it to a human being, so they have to introduce some sort of supernatural element. So, you know, oh, they were possessed by the Candyman kind of thing, like the Candyman had to be a part of it. Um, so works for me as an idea. Um, and this idea of you know, it, to the extent that it was actually used later on, this idea of fear and belief is actually sort of a, a key part of Freddy versus Jason. It's what Freddy Krueger needs to come back, that's like, why he sends Jason out into the world. They literally start stealing this idea from Candyman, but it works so well. This and also like with Candyman, the the cast, um, casting of Tony Todd, like he's not. There's no sort of like you know you you going back to those other slasher killers, you know you either have the sort of um, silent shadow, the shape that is either Michael Myers or Jason, or you get the sort of like witty chatterbox that is Freddy and Chucky, you know you get those types um candyman is not neither of those like he's suave and he's sort of confident and um knows what he needs and what he is and how it works like he's in he's in control for like a lot of the film um his whole plan this towards the end of the film um so well thought out to me and it's it's visually um stunning the film looks so good i mean the opening credits uh, where it pans over like Cabrini Green and you've got the music Michael Glass. Is it Michael Glass? His music playing and, and the piano piece is, is beautiful, but it's playing over this thing as you sort of, you know, and it gives you this idea but of of the tone. But you have this you know this 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 sort of um light noted I'm not I don't really know how to describe music sort of like tinkling piano piece that, um, you know, where they sort of make a children's music or sort of nice music, creepy, could be how you see it. But it's sort of panning over this sort of, like, urban area. And so you're already getting this sort of dichotomy of what would be a trim, trim to, like, a fairy tale or something like that, built into this this area, the urban decay. And so you have this, this sort of clash of ideas. And that's very much what Candyman is. Candyman... You could imagine this, this whatever the whatever being Candyman is. And I know in the film they attribute him to being this, um, his name escapes me now, but this character that was killed and covered in honey and had their their hand chopped off. Um, yeah, that's who the first film sort of puts it to. He's always 100 and so whatever years ago. This was what happened, and blah blah blah. And that was the creation of Candyman. But to me, like that's and this is what happens in the second, one, sorry, in the second one, in the the redo, the the uh, Lego sequel, is that you get um, this idea that actually the story of Candyman changes over time. It's always sort of you know going back to this like thirty year cycle or whatever, like this this generational cycle. Each generation has their own story of what who the Candyman is, and they have this notion of um, it's always relevant to that generation you know you can look back and say there's one character in the you know so they've got this one that goes all the way back to being uh post civil war um, u.s civil war all the way up to this this sort of alleged um child killer from the 70s you know sort of that one of the characters sees and then they're bringing in a new story the whole film is about bringing in this new story for this um This artist, and that's a new story for for you know a new generation will grow up with this story that will become their Candyman, but I can imagine that there's a there's a creature, much like sort of thinking of like Pennywise, you know, it's a very steel Stephen King idea. This sort of eternal being that's just always existed in the world, Pan, you know, this the god Pan that's always existed in the world but needs to be recognized for some sort of form of violence. Uh, to be almost worshipped, or feared, and recognised, and so you could go back to like, you know medieval times, and this coming from Europe or something where it lived in the woods, that thing that you feared in the woods, that that lured children. You know, f- um, I'm sure you could like I think Pan, you know, um, or some sort of fairy creature or fae, luring children in and killing them, and that being this idea of the Candyman, that you have to sort of um, Appease with, you know, with offerings of sweet fruits and candies and that sort of thing, and that's how you abided by it. Like I love this. Like, you could have this idea of this this entity that just exists through rumor and um, fear, and there's just spread across the world. And is now recognising these different forms, everything from you know Candyman through to Bloody Mary through to you know Jack the Ripper, whatever these characters. It is recognised or sort of feared in that way, and that's why I love this film because that's the idea. It's this idea of you know, it starts with folklore and the, about the graffiti, but it's all about the folklore, this urban folklore that's grown up around it. And what's her name? Um, bloody Ma- Maz- Madston. Oh, I'm so sorry, my name's my bloody mind has gone. But anyway, the female, the, the woman, the star of it again, beautiful woman, fantastic actress, but she embodies this thing the fact that, again, this thing of dichotomy, and again. I understand um you know th- this is a black um what what's, what's sort of like culture story I mean, it wasn't originally like Stephen Kit Stephen Clive Barker as a white guy from Liverpool but this is how it's it's been reinterpreted and and this is why I love it because it can be reinterpreted this is what it's, it's a fairy tale it can be reinterpreted in this way um but you introduce um this this sort of female academic this white-skinned blonde blue-eyed female academic and she is sort of like she's there to be the disney princess of this character like she's been introduced she's from this, this world of academia and high society higher society and she's introduced into this sort of like urban um decay and poverty that's being forced on these people in chicago in cabrini green and so she's sort of like then you know this idea of not being honestly corrupted by it but like pulled in, drawn in by this idea of this character, this the the candyman. Um, and her you know, then then her story, like her story becoming a new volume of violence, adds this new twist because it sort of like, you know, it expands it beyond Cabrini Green. Phenomenal idea. And I, I love this episode. so much I could talk about with this film and I've talked about it a few times now. I've even been I've even contributed to a documentary um that will appear on Miami Fox Publishing, Miami Fox streaming. Uh, very very soon uh, about the whole Candyman franchise so check that out Uh, but yeah anyway I am coming up to it I've overstepped because I love talking about Candyman so much but there are my top 5 films of 1992 going back 30 years there we go there's a 30 year nostalgia cycle let's see some of these coming back but Sister Act number 5 number 4 Unforgiven number 3 Evil Dead Army of Darkness number 2 Batman Returns and number one, Candyman. So what don't you go back, to contact me, put it in the, whatever you want to do, email me, put it on social media. Let me know what your thoughts are. Go back to 1992, 30 years ago. Firstly, how old were you? But what are your top five films from 1992? Those films have just hit the 30-year mark. Uh, let me know. I'll be fascinated to find out. Uh, but this has been 30-minute thoughts. This is the end of another quarterly cycle. We'll be back soon. With uh, story time. And I'll be talking about the Mesitant by M.R. James. Ready for Halloween. That we're going to be doing the House on Haunted Hill. For then and again. And we've got so much other stuff coming up. Obviously we've got Desert Island Comics. Uh, another thing of uh, Now That's What I Call. Uh, so much more as we go through the last quarter of the year. But for now. If you enjoy what you're doing. Or enjoy what we're doing. Please leave a review. Um we really appreciate it any feedback is fantastic feedback go check out the patreon there's a link down below www.patreon.com slash 20 cgmedia we've got all kinds of bits and pieces on there me doing more of these 30 minute thoughts all kinds of bits and pieces on there um we've got uh, uh, trekking through the twilight zone me and julian darius talk about every episode of the twilight zone and then i do Um, creator corner where i have a creator come on talk about what they are doing and other wider topics around the creation process Um, so go please check that out but for now ladies and gentlemen thank you very much and i shall talk to you again soon